Welcome to episode 9 of The Radicals. This is the last episode of the podcast. The Radicals is narrated by Amanda Friedlander. Intro and outro music by Siobhan Hurd. Links in the show notes. Parked in front of Carl's now, I watch Luke watch the house. The Harley Davidson and American flags are still hanging over the front yard. What are you going to get out of this? I ask. Try to understand. Dude, he's just not capable. Never mind. I'm not a kid. Are you sure you don't want to come in? I'll stay outside and listen, just in case. He's got guns, though. You know that, right? Yeah, I read his website. Fine, well, just don't feed the narcissist. Like, don't argue with him or get flustered. Once he smells blood, he'll go lower, I say. Luke picks up the bag of groceries he bought for Carl. I thought this was totally unnecessary, but Luke insisted he wanted to bring something. How did you get so nice, and how did I get so mean? I ask. You're not mean. You're just opinionated. And, you know, intense. It's a good thing. Carl's house is surrounded by a chain-link fence. Loud barking starts from inside the house. I run to the side of the house to avoid Carl seeing me. I hide next to the front porch. I can hear the squeak of the screen door. Hi, uh, Carl. Luke? Carl's voice sounds shaky. Luke? What are you doing here? I was around and thought, you know, I'd come by. I brought you some food. Thanks. Thank you. You're so tall. Do you want to come in? Sure. Yep. Okay. I don't have too long. I wait for a minute and then have a look around the place. I squat walk to the backyard. There is a garage back here. I go around to the back of it. It smells like old garbage and motor oil. I look inside and see a motorcycle. I look back toward the house. There are windows, but they look dark. I chance it and try the garage door. It's unlocked. I lift it about a foot and roll in and close it behind me. There is a photo of Carl and this motorcycle on his website. It is huge and outrageous, ornate, shiny, loved. I get on the bike. If he wasn't so fucked up, maybe Carl would have taken me for rides on his bike, and maybe I would have enjoyed the time with him. If he was a healthy person, maybe he would have thought about fun things we could do on our motorcycle adventure. A picnic and a swim at the beach. Simple times where we have fun together. I feel a cry coming, so I distract myself by scratching the shiny gas tank with my keys. The sensation of metal digging into metal is satisfying, like I'm helping the bike get free of something uncomfortable or confining. There is a long crowbar on the workbench that I shove deep into the guts of the bike. I think it's where the engine is. I use my full weight to bounce on the bar. This fucker is strong, and that makes me want to use all of my strength and pull it to pieces. 
Something makes a popping sound deep within the bike, and the crowbar drops to the ground. I move to the handlebars and smash the glass of the speedometer with the sharp end of the crowbar. I want to pry the piece with the numbers on it off for a souvenir, but the whole thing pops off and clangs onto the floor. I pull out the knife I carry with me sometimes. I grabbed it right after Sally showed up today, just in case. I feel my way around the bike to find loose wires. There aren't any. I start stabbing at the tires, but they are too thick. I make short, consistent movements, digging the tip of the knife into the back tire over and over and over. It doesn't give me the satisfaction of popping. I'm running out of time. I slice the seat cover down the middle, and the gash widens as the foam of the seat is exposed to the open air. That is satisfying as fuck. The metal of the underseat is exposed. This chopper is officially ruined. I put the speedometer and the knife back in my pocket and roll out of the garage. I notice a pile of deconstructed pallets in the corner of the backyard and nice pieces of wood next to them. Fuck you, Carl, I whisper. I stand at the edge of the front porch and I can't decide if I should go in the house or back to the car. If I go in, Carl will know it was me who ruined the bike. If I don't go in, he might think it was Luke who mutilated his detachable penis. I squat down and pull myself onto the porch and crawl to the front door. If I can hear them talking and it sounds civil, I will go in. On the other hand, if things sound like they are out of hand, I want to go in and get my little brother out. I put my ear up to the screen door. Carl is talking. What a fucking surprise. Your sister and her pussy group are delusional, he says. Hysterical women preoccupied with the idea that men live in the world to dominate women. They think there is some liberal utopia where everyone is equal and gender is a construct and that little boys should wear dresses and little girls should, I don't know, be president. That role is called the commander-in-chief. That is a male title. I would not feel safe with the lady as president. Luke grunts in response. Or maybe one of the dogs is snoring. A shiver passes through my body. I am definitely not going in. Why would I? He's not capable of giving me what I need. I am the only person capable of giving me what I need, and I need to not hurt about him, and going in there would hurt because it means I would be expecting him to give me something that he cannot. But I can't stop listening, because unlike when I was a child, I am tuned in to his words, and they are hilarious. I am working on another book, a tome, if you will. I think this one will be another good seller. My views seem to be popular in the current socio-political climate. I find this thought masterwork I've happened upon is well-suited to me. I inherently know how things work in the world. I understand the bees and their need to pollinate. I, too, see my work as a pollination of, well, the nation. I often see things and speak of what I see in a way that cuts through the bullshit if you'll pardon the expression. Bullshitting is just natural. Also technology, I get that. I understand how the elements need to fit together to make it work. Zeros and ones lined up in their right order to be able to make my phone ring, make a podcast go to air, make the planes fly high in the sky. It's all symmetrical, and none of that is by chance. I guess my point is that when the sun rises in the morning and the bees do their work pollinating, I thought you said your website got shut down and you got hacked. I love Luke. Yes, but my words will still find their audience. 
Carl says. He sounds defensive. Listen, it was, um, good to catch up. I just wanted to see you. I can hear shuffling. Luke is getting up. I crawl back to the edge of the porch and run back to the car and get into the driver's seat and start the engine and back the car up before they come out the door. Luke is rubbing the back of his head with both hands, looking at the sidewalk as he walks toward the car. That was fucked up, he says. I drive, and Luke tries to find music on the radio without any luck. I mean, what the fuck? He yells. His breathing is heavy, but I don't want to look at him because I have to drive. I need to get far away from Carl's house. Not in miles, but emotionally. What the fuck? He says quietly. All that stuff he said doesn't have anything to do with you. He doesn't know you, I say. Luke nods. He's a psychopath. Why do you say that? I ask. So many reasons. He said so much fucked up stuff about mom and racist shit and you and I just tuned out at some point. Then he was trying to get me to give money but not directly asking me. Some investment but it was an urgent thing. He wanted me to take him to the ATM right then. And Sally, he basically wants to kill her. Did he mention his motorcycle? I pull the speedometer out of my pocket and hand it to him. Oh, fuck. Did you break this while I was in the house? He left the garage unlocked. You are so talented. He smiles, and I feel like I've done good. I slice the seat and crowbarred the engine or whatever. I wish I could see what he does when he sees it. He's going to fall to his knees and reach up to the sky and scream, No! Why must I be punished so? I laugh hard. Then his two malnourished German shepherds will piss all over the bike he loves more than them. I shouldn't have gone in there. I think it was a good idea, I say. He didn't even care about Felix, you know? I showed him a picture and he said, Cute kid, is your wife hot? Played it off like he was joking. He wasn't joking. Even if he was, bad fucking joke, Carl. Did he say anything about me? Not really. He said that people are after him, though. That Sally took all his money and he doesn't go online anymore because he got hacked or whatever. People randomly attacked him or something. Do you know anything about any of that? I smile and shake my head. No idea. You know, Owen used to tell me that I shouldn't be angry at Carl. That something bad must have happened to him to make him the way he is. He tried to make me see Carl's side. I never have, he says. Even if something bad happened to Carl, or if his childhood was awful, that is no excuse for him to abandon us and be so fucking entitled, like he never did anything wrong. He could have acted like a parent, right? Yeah, he says. Yeah, I mean, what I learned from my short stint at childcare is that my needs, emotionally, socially, you know, as an adult, they need to take a back seat to the kids. At some point, Carl could have faced up to us and said, you know what, I fucked up. I can't take away your heart, but I can try to be better. I can try to be a dad. Not a hint of that, though. Never. Ever. Ever. Ask me if I know if he likes coffee or tea, I ask. What? Luke laughs. Ask me if I know if he likes coffee or tea, I ask louder. Luke laughs. Okay. Does Carl like coffee or tea? 
I don't give a shit what he likes, I say. I can hear my voice shaking. I take a deep breath. I rub my hands on my thighs and the heat climbs from my palms to my forearms and quickly up to my chest. My body tingles with goosebumps. It's such a little thing that if we had spent any quality time together, I should know what he likes to drink. He doesn't get that he had so many chances to show us, you know? Take me out to eat, listen to me about my life, tell me about his preferred drink, coffee or tea, and why he likes it. I listened at the door at his house. I heard his soliloquy just now and nothing has changed with him. He repeats these stories over and over. He has no capacity to see past his opinions, his theories, his pain. What if I'm like him? Luke is crying now and that takes me by surprise because it's like his version of a gasping sob. I yell a little too loud at him. You will never be like him. Look at me. You are nothing like him. I know you like coffee black because I've made you 50 coffees since you've been here. We've spent time together. Luke has caught his breath and is laughing now, and I am trying to keep my cry deep in my throat. I don't know why, but it seems like the right thing to do. I know you like yours with lots of half and half, he says. Little fucker. My tears fill my eyes so fast, and I'm laughing and crying now. He reaches over the expanse of the front of Aunt Penny's front seat and pulls me into the tightest hug he can, which hurts because we are both in our seat belts. Now I want a coffee, Luke says. We disengage from our hug and I drive these unfamiliar, yet familiar Southern California streets lined with palm trees so tall they seem pointless. We don't have these trees in New Zealand. I was going to ask you if you liked these trees. They're too tall. That's exactly what I was thinking. Not enough green. I pull into the parking lot of a roadside diner. This looks properly greasy, Luke says in a fake British accent. The diner is one of those places that feels like it could be any city in any state. There are faded photographs of hamburgers and 1950s Cadillacs in cheap plastic frames. The required Route 66 sign. The staff looks as hard-bitten as the tattered seats of the booth we sit in. A waitress whose shiny white name tag says, Mildred, happy to serve you, takes our order and immediately brings two plates for each thing we chose, because she knows without asking that we are sharing. We ordered too much food, Luke says to Mildred, who smiles at him and backs away like the pro she is. I emotion eat, I say to Luke. I guess I do too. Luke is rubbing his palms together. Do you want to process anything right now? I laugh. You used to say that after Owen died. I did? Yeah, I did, didn't I? What a dipshit. No, it was awesome. I mean, it wasn't awesome, but you know what I mean. What do you mean? He asks, and I'm annoyed I have to go there even though I brought this up. I feel bad. I mean, I feel like after he died that I didn't do the right thing for you. I don't feel that way. You and mom were always at home. That's what I remember. If I needed to talk, you listened. But did you ever feel like I... I stopped because I don't really know what I'm asking him. Like what? Like you didn't love me or anything? No. I guess I always just wanted to give you your space, you know? 
You seem super good right now, despite mom and everything. Do I? You do, he says. So what do you remember about me back then? Um, <laughs> you were, um, angry, prickly. I guess I tread lightly. Owen always said, give her space, give her patience. If she, you know, hurts your feelings, it's about her, not you. He always said, not just about you, but about my survival in the world. People are going to try to hurt you because that's what people do when they don't have any self-respect or they're insecure. That's pain, and that's what I remember about you. You were in pain, right? What was that about? I don't know, I say. I take a deep breath. I want to answer his question, but I don't know how. That time was pivotal for me. Sally was there, Mom wasn't. Anger was there and had always been there, I realized. Can I attribute my anger to anything specific? No. Listen, little brother, I just think that I was unhappy and angry, probably depressed. I wanted to opt out, so I did. I was always kind of proud of you, you know? Mom would complain about you and tell me some protest or whatever you did, and I would be like, fuck yeah, she's a warrior. I knew you were doing your thing. I've always told people that I have a fucking rad, badass sister. Little fucker did it to me again. I tried to unwrap the napkin from the cutlery in time to press it hard against my eyes so I am not visibly crying in this place, but it doesn't work. My tears fall onto the table. Luke hands me a napkin. I just feel like a fuck-up. Especially now. Would mom be sick if I worked a 9-to-5 and owned a condo? What? Yes, probably. And Cecilia didn't like me for me, you know? She wanted someone with aspirations and someone who, I don't know, goes to the dentist. You don't go to the dentist? I do. I mean, I have. I'm just saying I think I've gone past the point of no return. I have a record now. Pussy power is dead, and when I think about it, I'm just like, we were stupid kids when it started, and because I didn't want to be a grown-up, I strung it out for way, way too long. I don't know how the fuck I am not dead. The food comes, and I take a deep breath in, and the smell of pancakes and coffee and bacon fill me with hope, and I laugh. I'm sorry, I say. I've always wished Carl died a long time ago. I don't know. I think he got fucked up by his parents, who were probably fucked up by their parents. I feel sorry for him, actually. Group leader pops into my head, and she's waving her hands like she's conducting an orchestra. They hurt me. They didn't mean to, but they hurt me. I enjoy Felix so much. I miss him and Kate so much. All I can do about it is stuff four pancakes in my sad mouth. Luke cuts our tall stack in half and moves his half to a clean plate and this butter and syrup. I dig my fork into my half of the stack and the thing splits and the perfectly browned surfaces crack and reveal steaming pockets of white flour goodness. We need to give this place a five-star review. Mildred is the shit. Luke says, with a mouth full as he does a happy food shimmy with his butt in his seat. I can't even imagine how his mind works. He said mom owes him. I was just sitting there watching him. I saw this child in front of me. He was all gray-haired and flabby, but he was just a baby like Felix, and I almost wanted to go over there and cuddle him. Luke laughs and puts another fork full of pancakes in his mouth. 
What has his life been like? What was he running away from when we were kids? I don't get it. It's not hard to hang out with kids and not make it about you. The way he was talking, he believes the whole world is against him and he can't do anything without risking persecution. Like he even matters. I fill my mouth with pancake and bacon, but I have a hard time swallowing the food. This feeling is good and bad to hear Luke say all this. We have never done this before. We have never talked about this before. I know, it's nice. I mean, it hurts, but it's like a good pain, am I right? I wish you knew Owen like I did. He was a gift in my life, he really was. He was my father. I think he kind of prepared me for when he was going to die. He used to take me with him to his brother's grave and talk to me about how he felt like his brother was with him all the time since he died. They were super close and he died when they were in their 20s. Super sad. But he would clean the headstone with a set of stuff he kept in his trunk and just talk to his brother. He didn't even care that he was saying a whole bunch of personal, emotional stuff in front of me. What did he talk about? I ask. He was just talking about how he loved mom and how he was worried about you and how I was a good kid and he enjoyed being with me. Luke fills his mouth and chews with his eyes full of tears. So you think that helped you when he died? Yeah, because he talked so much. He taught me to do that. I still talk to him. That's why I sleep in the room with his ashes. We talked about Carl a lot. He told me he thought Carl was like an ostrich with his head buried in the ground. That he couldn't help it because it was just the way he was. He couldn't be any different. I forgot all this till just now. If I had thought about that this morning, I might not have come out here. I was just so surprised to see Sally, and then all of a sudden I was full of this angst. Then you were like running towards us, and I felt like I had to get you out of there. Take me someplace safe like Carl's house? Bad fucking idea. He laughs. You're the only person in the world who knows what I know about Carl. The only person in the entire fucking world who understands what it feels like to be his kid. That we know of. We both laugh hard. I don't blame mom either. I just think at some point grown-ups should act like grown-ups, but I guess I'm naive. Mildred? Luke is holding his hand up and waving his fingers. Mildred, I just want you to know that my sister and I are enjoying this meal immensely. Please tell your excellent kitchen staff that we are very impressed with their culinary skills. Can we get some more coffee in the check, please? I will let them know and I'll bring the pot over, Mildred says with a wink and eye contact with both of us before she walks away. We got a wink. Luke is beaming at me. You got a wink? I say smiling. Come on, don't make assumptions about old Millie. I think she could swing both ways. We laugh, and Luke holds out his hand onto the table for me. I am embarrassed, but I put my hand in his. Listen, I'm going to be really honest right now. I love you. Don't ever doubt that I love you very much, no matter what, okay? Okay. I know you love me. I have never doubted that you love me, he says. I do. I love you, too. That's it. That's all we need, isn't it? I guess. I'm going to be honest again. I need to take a shit. Luke leaves as Mildred pours the coffee. I thank her and take a sip. What a weird fucking day.
I'm glad I came. We don't get back to Julianne's till after midnight. I was hoping everyone would be asleep, but when we pull up, I see two bodies in the front yard emitting smoke. It's Sally and Tina. What are they doing out there? Luke says with a low groan. He's a tired boy. His flight leaves tomorrow night. Nothing I can't handle, bro. I tell him as I hug him goodbye. I'll come by tomorrow. It will be fun. We will sit around and chat with mom. He nods and tells me he loves me, and I tell him back. It's sweet and I'm embarrassed, but I'm dealing with that feeling. I open the car door. The night is eucalyptus, cigarette smoke, and weed. He's a handsome motherfucker, Tina says as I approach. Sally snorts. They are both sitting on the concrete in the driveway, probably off their tits. You two been here all night? I ask with disdain and envy. They look at each other and giggle. Are they best friends now or something? Sally has probably been entertaining little lonely and gullible Tina with my secrets. Edited with one of Sally's filters that always positions her in the right and me in the wrong. She has to leave. Can I talk to you for a sec, Sally? I say as I walk to the front door. There are moths everywhere attacking the light bulb over the front door. I avoid swatting them out of my way. I want to appear in control. In control of Sally and in control of the moths. I walk through the dark kitchen and into my garage room. The fluorescent flicker and pop in here are so bright that when I turn around and look at Sally, she looks like she's wearing blue makeup. You called, sir. Options of how I can say what I want to say are playing in my head. I don't want you here. Fuck off. You bring nothing but heartache and pain and I don't know if I can face it again. That's a foreigner song. Listen, I thought I want to make you an offer. Hmm, intriguing, Sally says and folds her arms. I will fly you to your brother's. Why would I want to go to my fucking brother's? Your nieces are out there. She is thinking about it. I can tell by the way she has shifted her weight from one foot to the other, and she's broken eye contact. I pull out a stare anyway for when she looks back at me. I use the truth serum. It snows there. Your mom and sister died, I say. It's a low blow, but I need to flip her fast. Get her vulnerable. I need her gone. She hasn't attacked yet, so I go on. Your nieces would be so happy to have you there. You would be a great aunt. I'm already a great aunt. Right, yeah. You are, and wouldn't it be so much better if you were there? In person. Playing in the snow. Making giant snow women flipping off the neighbors. I smile and pull both of my middle fingers and make a funny fuck you face. Sally laughs. She still loves me. It's going to work. You want to get rid of me? She says in what seems like a genuine sad voice, but I think she is faking it. Julianne made me an omelet and Tina is all over me. It's nice here. We're not young, I say. You're the fucking old one. I'm not a pussy anymore. I'm done. You're a twat. Okay, yeah, I'm a twat. You're a cunt-ass bitch. Uh-huh, that too. Come on, you're no fun. I guess not, I say. I could kick your ass right now. 
She lunges at me, but drops her cigarette onto the concrete of the garage floor. Fuck, she says as she squats down. She stubs the rest of it out. You would really fly me out there? Yes. You want to know something? I'm not sure I do, but I nod. I think we're actually done. I mean, I was there at Carl's and you didn't come to see me. You just let me stay with him. You know what I got out of that besides fucking nauseous every time he walked in the room? I got you, I think. I saw you in him, like the homeopathic version of him. Just a hint of a narcissist, a smidge of sociopathic tendencies, but a lot selfish. The thing is, you're fine and he's not and never will be. I don't know about that. Come on, give yourself some credit, Sally says and holds her hand out to me. I take it and we squeeze each other's hands. Luke and I just came back from his house. Did you hurt him? No, I mean Luke and him had a chat while I... I smile, remembering the seat of his bike splitting open under my blade. I trashed his Harley. You did? She gasps. Oh, fuck, that's like the worst thing you could have done to him. I regret it a little bit. He is an old man. He's so old. But he's really good at fixing that bike up. He's really good at fixing anything. You would have liked that about him. Fuck, I'm going to need a big coat. Will you buy me a coat? From a thrift store. I hate you. I nod. I feel nothing now. I think I have successfully developed that candy coating I was hoping I would. I want to lick my hand to see if it's sweet. I got some stuff for you, I say, and give her the stack of journals out of my chest. She holds them in both arms, and I think she might be happy right now. I think she might actually let me send her away. Sally turns around and leaves the garage. Could it be possible that this is actually happening? That our drama is behind us? Probably not, but right now, this is happening. I change into my flannel pajamas, hand-me-downs from Julianne. They are white with pink flowers and so soft. I love them more than I have ever loved anything pink. I brush my teeth in the laundry sink in the corner of the garage and get into my bed and I close my eyes. Just before I fall asleep, a feeling of regret sinks into my brain. I should have taken those fucking pieces of pallet wood from Carl's. Looking good, Julianne yells down at me from her second floor bedroom window. Frida is still sleeping. I'm in the above-ground pool floating on the giant pink lounger. I'm feeling pretty badass in my black bikini top and my best black jeans. The sun is blazing today, and my dark ensemble is soaking in the heat, and I almost can't handle it anymore. It's that time of day when all the neighbors are getting home from work and making dinner, and the kids are playing and fighting outside their houses. For once, I'm not scared of the normality of it. Cecilia is on an overnight work trip, and Frida is taking a nap in Julianne's bed. We spent most of the afternoon at the park with the boys. Mom is on her way to see Frida, and we're going to video call Luke and Felix on the computer. I bought some sweet potatoes from the organic shop down the road, and they are roasting in the oven right now. Cecilia said they are Frida's favorite. 
Julianne said after Frida goes to sleep, she wants to show me the online dating sites I should sign up to. I don't know if it's for me. She took photos of me yesterday. I looked at them for a long time, and I am proud to say that I'm not afraid of getting old, but it was still a shock to see that person staring back at me. The dating thing actually scares the shit out of me. I'm not sure there's any person who can handle what I've got going on, and I don't even know how to date. I tip myself out of the floaty and fall down to the bottom of the pool and release a stream of bubbles out of my mouth. They fly to the surface above me. I grab my knees and roll into a ball. I can stay like this for half a minute or so before I start to panic. Then I find the bottom with my feet and push off as hard as I can and burst through the surface of the pool with my arms high above my head like a girl in a 1980s soda commercial, except my armpits are hairy. I find the floaty and lift myself back on. My jeans are heavy with water. The surface of the floaty is hot. I look at the clear blue sky and feel the movement of the water under me. I smile and notice the heat of my tears falling from the corners of my eyes. This is a new cry that's been happening lately. I call it the smile cry. It's fucking cheesy as fuck, but it feels good. So I let it happen. The End The Radicals is dedicated to Amy Super. Thank you for giving me life. And Ruth Jackson. Thank you for keeping me living. This book has been part therapy and part compulsion, and I would like to thank the following people who have supported me during the creation of this story. Monica Tresandes, your insightful feedback is always motivating and spot on. Tony Chappelle, you listened to my strange plot ideas and read way too many drafts, and so quickly, and offered caring suggestions. You are wonderful. Ed Good, you ask about the book every time we speak, and I used those check-ins as artificial deadlines. Helen Lendorf, you listened and listened and listened. Christine Bora, your support of me and authors is second to none. Sue McCauley, you are a great mentor, officially and unofficially. Thank you also to Rachel Offord, Christina Bagley, and Brent Putz. Huge thanks to A.M. Leibowitz. You read this book at a pivotal time, and your enthusiasm and suggestions motivated me to get to the end. Thank you for the editing, Anne Atwood. Thank you to Amanda Friedlander for reading this whole book out loud for the podcast version for free. You are one of a kind. Thank you, Siobhan Hurd, for the beautiful song, Missed Call. Many thanks to New Zealand Pacific Studios for the residency and productive walks. Thank you, Susan and Dave Barry, for your encouragement and support and child care. To my brother, Deepak, your music is an inspiration, and I appreciate you. To my mother, Amy Super, thank you for supporting your creative kids to be creatives. To my children, thank you for being full of enthusiasm and jokes and hugs. To my wife, Ruth Jackson, your love and support prove to me every day that I have won the love lottery. Finally, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. 
I hope you've enjoyed the radicals and get in touch at marilynkrasner.com. Sorry, I missed your call.